Welcome to the Brookie and Bircho podcast. I'm Brookie, also known as Peter Bruckner, and uh, he's Bircho, also known as Darren Burgess. G'day, Bircho. Hey, Dot. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Now, uh, we seem to have had a, uh, a few guests from the UK recently, and we've got another one today. Would you like to introduce him? I would. The first time I met this guy, he was driving the club car of Colchester United to a training ground that would only be described as a, as it will call it an amateur park Sunday league training ground. And I said to him, uh, what are your ambitions? And he said, well, I think I want to go lower. <laughs> so um, so uh, it's an absolute pleasure to mention one of the really true good guys of the industry, Dave Carroll. And welcome, Dave. Thanks, Darren. Oh, what a day that was meeting you when the Colchester United team car. Yes, I, d- I didn't realise all those years ago that um, moving to Colchester, having left Norwich, um, the guy who was leaving threw me some keys and I said, what's this for? He said, oh, that's for your club vehicle. <laughs> and I went round the corner and saw what can only be described as a painter decorator van <laughs> and in the back was all of the training equipment that the club possessed and he said every day you travel around the town and find somewhere to train yes. and that's when i knew i'd peaked in sport yeah well for the australian listeners it was a mini mr whippy van uh, is what it looked like <laughs> and that will make sense to the aussies great welcome mate tell us about yourself Wow, where do I start? Yeah, okay. Well, we'll skip the whole, um, you know, growing up bit maybe. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Ireland. Uh, I suppose I should say that. So I'm Irish by descent and uh, very proud of that. And um, what actually took me to the UK originally when I was 17, 18 years old was I had a a reasonably promising rugby career ahead of me. Um, So it's coming up next month. It will be 30 years since I played under 18 international rugby for Ireland. And I thought, here we go. I'm going to be a decent level athlete. Um, and then, yeah, I came over to university in uh, in London at St. Mary's University, which is um, has grown to be quite a, quite a prestigious university now for some of its uh, courses. And... Um, it, it was a mecca for a lot of Irish people who were coming to try and study sports science because there wasn't even a sports science course in Ireland. You had to pretty much leave the country. You could do PE, but I wanted to do something that was um, a little bit more advanced, um, a little bit more focused on, on athletes as opposed to children. Um, and there was a real strong link when you came to St. Mary's with London Irish. And that was where I ended up uh, playing, uh, came over as an 18 year old um, And then within about 18 months, as every sports scientist, performance practitioner, I'm sure a doctor, um, official, has had a career-ending injury or career-defining injury, which meant focus on other opportunities. Um, I still continued to play, but I was out for about two and a half years with an injury. Um, So I focused on sports science. and It wasn't called performance then. It was just sports science. And um, took the opportunity to start start my career as such so um within a couple of years i was uh, helping manage the the sports science and fitness provision at the club um not long after that got some opportunities working with uh, the irish rugby football union because rugby had just gone pro um so players were now moving across the uk and ireland to to pick up contracts so i started managing some of those and yeah that that was the kind of 
the seed had been sown then in terms of my career and how it's developed over the last 30 years. Well, take us through. Uh, take us through a few of the uh, few of the roles. You know, you obviously moved from from rugby to uh, to to soccer to football. How, how did that happen? Well, uh, in between that, I actually ended up in cricket for a couple of seasons um, with a, with a, a great Aussie physio called Dale Naylor, who was based out of out of London at the time, who um, who was working with Surrey and wanted somebody to come in on the kind of sports therapy side or helping with low level S and C and, and you know even sports massage. So um, yeah, I went from kind of London Irish and, and doing some bits and pieces with them uh, to working with Surrey cricket. I actually was working at Science Museum in London as well at the same time. So um, a, a real kind of eclectic mix. And then my my, my really good friend and someone who Darren is is very au fait with, Joe Dunbar. Um, Joe invited me to a meeting where himself and his, his good friend Keith Power, um, I came with a proposal to say Harlequin's rugby team were looking for a whole fitness uh, performance service to be provided and i thought we could go in as a trio and they said no we have a job we need you to go in and do it and i said okay great where and what am i going to be doing they said we can't tell you but will you do the job and it it was literally left like that we'll tell you on monday you'll start on thursday and they wouldn't tell me where in the country it was because they said if we tell you you'll know where it is and we can't afford it for it to get out um so I literally accepted a job from them, not knowing where it was, what it was going to be doing, but I trusted them and I, I believed in, in what Joe was telling me. And they know I had a previous uh, bad experience with um, a job offer that had come up at Chelsea previously, which fell through because of classic football mismanagement that somebody else had offered a job to somebody else at the same time. Uh, so they were they were very much aware of that. And they said, look, trust us on this. And that was, yeah, uh, a move to East Anglia. I didn't know where Norwich was. And they said, yeah, we're going to Norwich City. We're setting up a whole support service for performance, nutrition, S&C, uh, physiology, psychology, um, and really was the first groundbreaking full system, systemic support system, probably in UK football. Um, so, yeah, it's Joe's fault and Keith's fault that I end up in football. <laughs> and how, um, well, give us a couple of the the sort of, uh, clubs that you've worked for since then? Yeah, so, well, Norwich was 10 years. So, yeah, a big stint there. Um, and that took me from 1998 to 2008, where, like in most football clubs, you you kind of, well, in my experience, you, you kind of leave, not because you necessarily want to, because you have to. Um, <laughs> and that brings up a whole thing about, you know, how you leave football clubs um, or, or any other kind of uh, organisation where it's not necessarily your choice. Uh, so I went from there. Then I, I had a few offers on the table almost straight away. It, it was one of those situations where I kind of knew it was coming. So I'd started to do some work to prepare. Um so I had an offer to go to work with England Rugby as a head of analysis or another opportunity came up, which was at Colchester. And I was I was kind of 34 at that stage. I still th thought I wanted to be on the grass rather than behind a computer. So I went with the Colchester gig. Um, my wife is from Colchester. So, you know, she knew the area. She didn't want to necessarily move back to the area, but she knew the area. We, we thought it was a good opportunity. 
I thought for a sh- potentially short period of time before I'd bounce on to something else. Um, and while opportunities came and gone, uh, came and went, sorry, um, it wasn't for another seven years where I decided, okay, I need to actually move myself now. I'm starting to get into that rut of being stuck at one place. Um, and it wasn't necessarily getting any better. Um, so, yeah, um, I'd been contacted by by another colleague who said, look, we're looking for somebody at Birmingham. Would you come and meet the manager? I met the manager. We got on quite well at the um, <laughs> at the interview. It was a different type of interview, but it was a good interview where there was a couple of key questions he asked me, which were basically around his philosophy and my philosophy, and would they would they kind of gel? And off the back of that, I got offered a job, and I've been with the same manager now for six years. So that took us to Derby, and then it took us to Stoke City. Uh, had a little sojourn in the middle where I went into another part of the industry and then, yeah, met up at Millwall where I am today. Fascinating, uh, fascinating journey. I'd lo- love to chat first about um, the pros and cons with working with the same manager with with sort of following the manager. And as someone who sort of hasn't done that, I guess I looked at uh, the other side with a bit of envy, uh, you know, you've sort of always secured a job uh, as long as the manager gets work, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I can see the, the other side of it as well. Um, so talk, talk me through the, the, the positives and negatives for yourself, Dave. Yeah, I suppose I've, I've worked with two managers. I've been fortunate enough for coaches that I've worked with for over five years. So at Nigel Worthington, when I was at Norwich, we had six years together where we're in one organization. And that was that was great because you, you had built up that whole philosophy of how we trained, how we prepared. We knew each other's work inside out. And that's pretty much the same now working with Gary Rabbit. Although what we've had to do here is move through four different organizations, which has meant a lot of flux. And I suppose why why a manager would trust to bring somebody with them is it deals with a lot of the issues that they potentially don't necessarily need to have to be dealing with, you know, like the interfacing with medical performance, nutrition, strength conditioning team, um, an analysis and recruitment team. So Joe Carnell, who also has been at all of the clubs with with myself and Gary, we, we've kind of um, almost been those in the continent in, in Europe, they kind of call them second assistant managers, first assistant managers, which might be different from a coach, but they serve that purpose where whether it's physical technical recruitment um which the manager places a lot of trust in these people to be able to um manage in in a horizontal or potentially in a um vertical fashion um where they need to and the manager or the head coach then has one point of contact in terms of a lot of the information he needs to get back it doesn't mean he doesn't have those um, deep conversations and meetings with those heads of department. But when it comes to clarity around their philosophy and the transfer of that information going between lots of different groups, he knows he doesn't necessarily have to deal with all of that all of the time. He can he can leave those um, those areas to us to to hopefully drive those uh, those changes or influence those changes that he might want to make. Yeah, I think it, uh, philosophically, as a manager, you, that's what you would want to do, wouldn't it? You, you would want to bring in people that you can trust and that 
um, know your methodology and um, yeah, so I think that makes some sense. What, a, what about, can you see it from the other point of view? Have you been at a club when a manager has bought in uh, his or her own person? Yeah, it's happened. Uh, it's happened to me twice. Um, and in both cases, in, in very different ways. One was very upfront. We knew straight away this person was coming in. Um, and that's fine. That's all pretty uh, clear. Um you understand what your role then is, which moves from a lead role to more of a support role. Um, you, it, it depends, of course, on your personality and how things are done, which um, a change of coach is always a difficult time for for staff, for players, for the whole club, because a lot of people are on, on tenterhooks. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of churn. And that puts people in very different kind of uh, psychological states. Some people quite like it because they may not like have liked the previous coach or the previous manager. So for them, it can be quite an exciting time. And uh, for other people who are quite close to the manager and quite like them, it becomes a quite difficult time. And there's certain roles within clubs which, which are probably more at risk when coaches change. And certainly a head of performance is potentially one of those and a head of medical potentially is one of is one of those as well because um if managers have been seen to work with people previously you're you're obviously nervous that they might bring that person in um and then it's it's really about your personality about how you go about doing that you know are you kind of a good bloke who's going to try and still look after the athletes that you've been caring for, still working with a lot of the coaches that you were working more for, they're going to be looking for you to be as um, kind of normal as possible. They don't want to see mood swings from you. That that They're going to be in a, a similar kind of position where they're, um, they're nervous, they're concerned. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've got no reason to feel that this person has been chosen over me you know, because of anything I've done, it might be just that the manager places trust in them. So that's fine. I can deal with that. And then I'll help them the best I can. And if it works for us and, and we move forward, that's great. And if it doesn't work for us, okay, at least I've gone about it the right way. I've tried to help the person. I've tried to look after the athletes. I've tried to look after the staff and the manager. And if that then proves to be not a workable thing, I can leave with my head held high. Um, in, in the other situation where the manager's gone about it in a very very different way where it was a little bit of osmosis there was a little bit of shenanigans if you want to use that term going on behind the scenes which eventually led to me leaving the club at the end of the season but it had been drip fed in there were you know kind of the legs were being chopped from under you from over a period of time which effectively meant it really untenable by the end And can you can you prepare for that at all? Like you know, if we have some sort of practitioners out here listening, that you know, how how would you prepare for for that scenario? Um, yeah, I suppose experience gives you the the foresight to see something coming down the track. Um, you start to see the signals. You maybe are aware of the conversations. You understand how coaches go about doing something like this so yeah i think um you can prepare for it by i suppose 
trying to read whatever signals you can get. So, for example, if your if your advice is being ignored or the ab- absolute opposite of what you say is being done, or you're not even being invited into the conversation, you probably know your time is going to be coming to an end. <laughs> you know, um, so I, I think when you're a young practitioner, maybe you're not in the um, in the crosshairs of a decision like that. Um, so you probably don't get to see the signals. It's not really until you start to fill, fulfill those higher level leadership roles that you start to see how those things kind of play out. Um, and and I, I think it comes down to those kind of, there's a difference between experience and experiences. So experiences of being sacked or losing a job, um, you don't really know what it's like until you do it. Um, a, a lot of people are kind of in the industry, maybe laugh about it that it's some form of badge of honor that you haven't really kind of really worked in elite sport until you've ended up being shown the door at some stage. Huh. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, um, if you are going to work at that cutting edge, if you're going to take those top end roles, the sword of Damocles is always going to be hovering, hovering over your head, potentially. Yeah, well, Dan and I can uh, vouch for that, can't we, Virgil? <laughs> <laughs> yes, most certainly. Most certainly. And what about um, adapting to different uh, different managerial styles? How have you How have you found that? Um, uh, obviously, you've had you know some uh, a reasonable succession with a couple of different managers, uh, a reasonable yep. process with them. Um, but how have you uh, adapted your style to suit? certain managers and after that we'll go into um certain cultures i guess at the different clubs you've worked at yeah i suppose having worked with maybe 20 odd coaches or managers whatever the terminology you want to, to use it, it changes across sports of course um I, I think you learn from every single one of them about how they work and the different styles that they employ and how that affects you um I suppose the analogy I could could use is uh, you could be a palm tree or you could be an oak tree. You know, you could be somebody who's dead set. They've got strong roots and they are inflexible. That's your classic oak tree kind of practitioner who's think it's it's my way. I've got one way of, or not one way of doing it. I've got a way of doing things, and it's up to other people to um, to kind of conform to what I want or adapt to what I want. Um, or you can go with the palm tree. Uh, so when those winds of change come in from a new manager and they blow hard and they blow fast and they could come from any direction, can you flex with it? Yes, you. you of course, you've got your roots that are going to be whatever your philosophy is, but you, you have to also be able to roll with the punches. And, and that means when a different philosophy comes in, you, you've got to potentially be able to say, okay, maybe this thing or this process of philosophy that I've been employing for whatever period of time that might be, isn't going to work in this situation. So how can I get as close to that um, process or, or philosophy to be maintained while also allowing the new coach, the headspace and, and the leg room to be able to do whatever they believe in as well? Because um, they might have come from a different environment where something worked really well for them, and and that's what they believe in. So, I think if if I was to use that analogy, yes, 
have your roots and whatever your philosophy is and your beliefs, but be ready to flex, be ready to change. Because if you if you can't and you go for the oak tree, when the strong wind comes, it'll blow you over. And that leads you back to the to the area we're just talking about, which is you end up leaving the organization because if the head coach can't work with you or you can't work with him, then it's not going to be a a, a good kind of balanced relationship. Um, it's going to get in the way of him working with the athletes, you working with the athletes, and, and that's not going to be something that's going to be tolerated, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. It's a great philosophy to have, mate. Um, and what about... When you go into um, going to a different club um, with, with the manager, um, I recall having several conversations with you um, uh, at, at when you went into places like Stoke and Derby and those sort of scenarios, and and how to work with the incumbent people there when you're the manager's guy or girl. How do you uh, handle that scenario? Because that can be sl- slightly delicate. And how do you sort of <laughs> to, implement to your that. Yeah. yeah, to say the least. How, how do you implement your philosophy uh, amongst a, a culture that's already um, it's already there? Yeah, I think it's it's that classic, you know, hundred day hundred day methodology. I think somebody's now already like reduced it by ten percent. It's a ninety day methodology <laughs> now of uh, because we've got to get to zero as quickly as possible, haven't we? Um, but yeah, it's it's. In those first kind of 100 days, it's taking on as much information as possible, gleaning as much information as possible, only necessarily changing the things that have to change um, and change quickly. You know, um, it, it's easy to go in and just say, this is how we're doing things now and implement that straight away. And yes, that might be a good thing to happen, especially when it's a closed season appointment where the manager goes in when there's there's no staff around, there's no players around. They can set in place what's going to happen and everyone's just going to have to adapt straight away. That's potentially an ideal if you're going in um, because you can literally just change things overnight. Um, but in a lot of cases, if you go in um, late season or mid season, it's hard to go in and suddenly change everything um, and upset the apple cart. Really easy to lose a lot of staff uh, belief very quickly by suddenly deciding what you're doing isn't right um, and we can't work with that. We need it done this way. Um, so part of that is also, you know, a sales technique. You've got to go in and sell your philosophy to the staff. They've got to come on board with what you believe in as well. Um, you've got to allow them a certain amount of flexibility to be able to interact with that, how they see. Um, you know, They may come up with some fresh ideas themselves. They may be already doing a lot of what you might want to do. Um, so doing that almost as, a, as, a, as an early... Um, CPD almost of this is our philosophy of how we like to train, how we like to prepare, how we like to play. These are a lot of the elements that we'll be looking to serve as in terms of athlete support, both for games, for recovery, for traveling or whatever that might be. Um, and, and explaining that to the staff really helps with them with buy-in because suddenly they see it painted in front of them. And then off the back of that, we can then have, you know, sub meetings with each department where they'll 
be able to then say, well, we do this instead of that, or we've been using this system instead of the, the one you proposed. Um, and they can almost present back to us in terms of what they've done as well. You know, so um, it, it, it is that that kind of uh, confluence of two philosophies hopefully coming together um, to, to make something even better. Uh, I think if you if you're to go in and just say it's my way or the highway, you, know, you might find that there's a lot of resistance. Um, so we've tried to implement that, um, and and I think that's why, again, going back to why a manager might bring you is okay. Can you get on with uh, molding whatever we have here into what we need to do? Um, because that will hopefully um, serve us in the long term to be able to deliver the philosophy around how he wants to play and then get results off the back of it. Now, I was going to ask what about the issues with, uh, with uh, I mean, every English football club basically has a, uh, a multitude of, uh, of players of different nationalities, different cultures, different languages and so on, uh, which seems to be, you know, has, has got you know, increased really over the last uh, 10 to 20 years while you've been in the game. I would imagine when you first started, it was largely a, a British sort of a playing group, and now it's uh, it's very much very much different. How have you coped with uh, with that? With as I said, those different cultures and lang- a lot of language issues as well. Some of the players, you know, speak limited English and so on. Tell us some of the challenges and how you've handled those sort of uh, issues. Yeah, I, th- I think when you when you're dealing with players from different cultures and uh, speaking different languages. Yeah, making any type of effort to learn about their language or learn about their culture and taking time to to research that and, and having genuine interest in the player and their background and where they came from and their family life um, pays dividends. You know, it may be that you only learn three or four words of their language, which might be good morning and how are you? Um but, you know, little things like that count so much for those players that put them at ease. It's like somebody is taking the time and effort to come towards their culture, come towards their language. Um, and it's it's amazing how many times even those first few words, you know, put a smile on their face. Uh, and then, of course, maybe in, in England, you end up moving towards English because it is the, the kind of dominant language, um, especially in England and Ireland. You know, I, I think... Um, in Ireland, we've always had a strong um, interest in languages, you know. So at school, you were learning French or German or Spanish, so as well as the Irish language and English. So I think on from a language point of view, that was a great place to start. I think more clubs are looking at it now from having that player liaison person now in state uh, at the club who can deal with a lot of those issues. Um, so they're already researching where the player might be coming from and therefore when they're trying to source where they might live and the type of environment they need to be surrounded by and that might be access to schools, it might be access to places of religion, it might be access to foods that they might want to get because of their, their culture and their or their religion. Um, I think those type of people which didn't exist maybe 10 years ago are now becoming more common in clubs um so i think clubs have now really worked harder to embrace the fact that they are multicultural and they are multinationality um and, and they're even multi-religion um and it, it affects so many 
areas of the game, you know. So when it comes to foods that we put on at the uh, at the training ground or at, at away hotels, we need to c- cater for players when when it's Ramadan. We need to cater for players when it's Lent, you know, depending on whatever the religious backgrounds be. So I think it's it's got so much better now. Um, granted, down through the leagues in England now, there's probably a, a little bit less of the multicultural, um, you know, or certainly global nationalities. Um, it tends to be a little bit more, what would you say, uh, the, more nationalities which are relatively similar um, playing in the lower leagues, but once you go to the Premier League, of course, it's it's a uh, it's a kaleidoscope, it's a rainbow of nations. Exactly. I remember at Liverpool, we had uh, we had a, a Dutch player who spoke good English, and uh, he ordered a takeaway one night and got the wrong food. And uh, from then on, I think for the next five years that he was there, he got the player liaison guy to order his takeaway every single night. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's a tough gig like that that. Uh, that player liaison uh, role. That's for sure. Um, look, yeah, Dave, you had a great one. At, uh, sorry to yeah, go, we go had ahead. a great guy at um, at Derby County, Adam Storer, who was fantastic. Yeah. The players loved him. You know what? And he was worth his weight in gold because um, he, he knew everything that was going on. Um, nothing was too much trouble for him in terms of making sure that the players were were happy and catered for, um, and it, it just made. As a as a head coach, you just knew things were being taken care of, and especially at the nationality level, where you had players coming in from different countries, he he just got on with that. Now I've been at other clubs where I've seen a player arrive on their first day, and the club hadn't sorted out a hotel, they didn't know where he was going to potentially live. There were, nobody picked him up from the airport and he had just been signed for like millions of pounds and now suddenly like literally nobody's taking care of him. So <laughs> yeah. not everybody gets it right all of the time. Yeah, that's true. It is a really important role. There's no doubt about that. Dave, you're, you're working in the championship now um, and, you know, it's always uh, thought to be the toughest uh the toughest level of, of football, you know, there's uh, what 24 teams. They got what 46 games, uh, more, you know, significantly more than the Premier League and, and other leagues. Um, what are the, some of those challenges? Because you're basically playing twice a week, aren't you? I mean, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, what are the challenges there, that, and how have you sort of uh, managed to cope with that? Well, yeah, I suppose in my life in the championship because I've been here so long. You know, <laughs> I think I should get off for good behaviour at some stage, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the the championship's so attritional. Um, you know, in terms of the, the physical demands of the of the game, it's f- for your average Premier League team who's going to play thirty eight games and complain that it's you know really tough. You know, we've got another eight games on top of that. If you get a couple of rounds in each of the cups, you're getting to fifty games. And okay, you know. I, I can't really hold a candle to, to Darren and some of the like mammoth seasons he's had. But, you know, uh, year after year, these players who uh, are potentially churning out even bigger numbers than some some teams might do in the Premier League uh, in terms of physical output every week. Um, they're getting less recovery time between those games. Um, they don't have the best of facilities in terms of regeneration suites and you know all of the equipment and the best nutrition you know we do our best but it's still not optimized 
Um, so I think it's great credit to the to the players and the practitioners who work down at that level that they manage to keep most of the players available most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's it's um it's a, it's a challenge also in the past we wouldn't have had the, as good of pitches uh, we wouldn't have traveled in as good of coaches you know nobody's flying in the championship well maybe one or two clubs might have some flights during the year so there's time spent on trains and buses you're getting in at five in the morning you know uh, and then you're, you're getting the players you know there's no point taking them in for a recovery day because you'd literally just take them off the bus and start your recovery day straight away you know because um they they need their time at home um because they're spending so many time so many days away playing games um, and training um so so it's very much a different existence in the championship um as, as it is in league one and league two you know those guys are doing effectively exactly the same as in the championship i think it's the premier league which is the outlier for bar the top four top six teams they'll play a lot less than the championship and it's not necessarily that much harder. It's not a magnitude harder in terms of physicality or in terms of a total physical output in a game. So, yeah, it's um, it's been tough keeping these guys fit. This year has been like a hell of a year, I think, across the league in terms of injuries. Mm. So, well, What's your thought process? Uh, two, two questions, if I can, Dave. What's your thought process? Interesting there, recovery has become a bit of an obsession amongst um in our field um what's your trying to get people up for tuesday saturday um what's your thought process around that and the balancing act of okay i'm just going to send you home because there's a mental aspect to it versus no the science says seven minutes in the ice baths at between 10 and 12 degrees um you know massage and whatever else you might have in your in your toolbox at millwall yeah, we do have an ice bath, so you know we can <laughs> we can quash all rumours that we don't have one. Yeah, we do have one. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, it goes back to philosophy. Um, I think in terms of me as a practitioner, the manager and what he wants to do, and and some of the other staff, and we've always put great store in the fact that. Um, some of the recovery that you get away from the training ground, not being there mentally is just as important as the physical regeneration. Now, of course, there's an acute amount of physical regeneration that you want to do between games, especially with a fast turnaround. Um, So we invest in lots of other modalities to try and help that as well. So the players will normally have eight or nine different modalities that are available to them post-match, be that soft tissue, be that compression garments, ice baths, foods, fluids, um, compression garments, if I haven't already mentioned that, um, compression um, units, game readies, all of that kind of stuff is available to them. And we also have like active recoveries, active warm downs as well. So we don't think necessarily getting everybody in the following day. And, and we're in central London as well. And most of the players live outside. So if you're taking them in for a 45-minute recovery session, you're asking them to travel three hours to do that 45 minutes. So we're using the technology that we have now. So we'll get everybody on Zoom on the morning afterwards. Uh, they've all been issued with um, you know, yoga stretching mats. They've got um, 
foam rollers we're trying to get everybody into what bikes or spin bikes uh, in the next year all the players will have to hopefully invest in that you know we, we can't supply 25 of them as a football club but the players can invest a little bit into themselves as well it's just good practice as an athlete to to maybe invest in some small bits of equipment that'll allow them to to really self-serve in terms of some of that stuff so we want them to have ownership of their recovery. They are the athletes as well. You know, if they don't believe in it, like there's no point in us just you know, paying lip service to it by bringing them in because they don't believe in it. You know, um, they have to take some ownership of their own preparation, their own recovery, their own regeneration. So we're going to treat them like adults. We're going to advise them as to what they need to have and then we'll guide them, you know, and that's that's an education piece, isn't it? You know, we want to have athletes who are, bought into this stuff they believe in it and this year we've we've used the curio compression garments which are all 3d um scanned and they're all bespoke created for them um all the players have had access to buying things like rpx or normatech systems and probably over 60 percent of the team now have I've gone down with some kind of recovery pump that they have at home now. So even if it's on a, a normal training day, they can invest in their own recovery. So yeah, that, that that's our kind of philosophy around it. We, we believe that if it's time away mentally, as well as not driving and they see the family, you know, that's, that's a good investment as well. And in terms of your readiness to play assessment um, without going into two sort of technical uh, um, a scenario, um, what are the, the massive alarm bells that, that you would really act on um, in your situation, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, physical league every week, travel, all that sort of stuff? What are the one or two things that you won't ignore? Um, certainly the first thing we look at straight after the game is like the, the current performance in the game they've just played. You know, are we seeing any markers there? Are we seeing any metrics that are abnormal? Um, a, a spike in anything in particular, which could be a, a maximal speed that's been hit or a, a number of those uh, repeats of those, a density of those. Um, you know, abnormal sprint distance. We, we've had instances recently where we've seen players hit very, very high numbers um, in, in games. Uh, and, and of course, we're tracking those all the time. So we see when people are abnormally high. So that's the first thing. That's straight after the game. The manager will know, the, the staff will know that people have kind of overperformed in certain metrics. And that starts to guide where we're going to start taking conversations over the next few days. And, you, you know, without having to go on to the technical side, those conversations become the gold dust. Players are already oh. going to indicate to you whether they feel they're going to be able to perform in the next game. Um, and the more experienced players understand their bodies better, they know what they can cope with. We could put them on a, you know, on a set of force plates and get them to jump or get them to do a squeeze test or whatever. And, and it might give us some metrics. But we've also seen, as I'm sure you two have, that you can have athletes who can produce like, terrible scores on, on some kind of test that might be used as a... Uh, as a primer test or <clears throat> as something that's going to guide the, the readiness to play. But the player can still go out and then churn out big numbers and play the game and be fine, you know. And likewise, you'll see other players who hit every number that you would expect. They got all greens across the board and then they go out and get injured. So 
I, I think we put a lot of store into the player, um, but that's not the only thing. We will use those other supporting pieces of evidence to guide us to a decision. And then <clears throat> those conversations that will take place will be at multiple levels. The, they'll be from the medical staff, the performance staff, and the coach, of course. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, because they're valid conversations that have to be had. Uh, and that's how we'll end up at a at a point in time where we'll then make a decision whether we think the player is a risky risky decision to play him or not. Dave, we're, uh, we're fast running out of time, unfortunately, but I, I'm really curious about uh, about life in the championship. I mean, uh, you know, they say it's the most competitive uh, <laughs> league in, in the world, and obviously the the rewards of finishing in the uh, in the playoff, uh, well, in, in the promotion positions, obviously the top two get promoted, the next four uh, go into the playoffs. I mean, the rewards are huge, you know, to get into the Premier League. You know, they talk multiple, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of, of dollars. So, you know, uh, and Millwall are, you know, thereabouts. I mean, they're not in the playoff positions, but they're, you know, they're, they're still in contention for, for uh, promotion. We're stalking the playoffs. Stalking, Peter. okay. Stalking. stalking, right, okay. Hanging about um, like what, you know, t- Tell us about the sort of the, the pressure, um, and obviously, you know, from owners and and and, uh, and fans and, and everyone, and when there's such, you know, so such big stakes, when when you get to that final sort of quarter of the season as, as you are now, and you, as you say, you're a, you're stalking, you're in contention. I mean, what what added pressures, and, and how do we how do you help uh, the players and the staff, you know, cope with that? Yeah, it's a it's a real great question because it brings up like um, a multitude of different responses that we could go with. You know, do we talk about the playoffs? You know, as soon as you start talking about it, it puts some players right on edge because they're now nervous. There's like a a, a focus on something that then you know may have never been there, or they may find that that could be very challenging for us. Let's be honest; some players might not want to make the playoffs because if we get to the playoffs and we get promoted and we're in the Premier League. That might mean they don't play and that could fundamentally affect their career. So, you know, maybe we're we're happy enough staying in the championship. I don't think we've got many of those players, but that's not to say in their quiet moments when they're driving in and out to training ground, they're not sometimes processing that. Um, but for us, we're trying to keep everything lighthearted. Um, we're focused on the process of what we do, you know, how we're going to win games. What we get for winning games will will sort itself out. But if we go along and uh, have a good process about how we prepare for games and how we go in to perform for them, you know, and, and that requires on so many things aligning for us to be able to win enough games to to be in contention then so be it. We will have done a good job on a tiny budget with a limited playing squad in terms of numbers um, and with potentially what other people would say not the best squad in the division. But as we know from kind of, you know, group dynamics and that kind of cohesion, it's not necessarily the best players that get promoted or win things. It can be the best team that does that, you know, and and, and we're focusing on, on ensuring that the players feel that, you know, if that, that process is carried out, it gives us a better chance of winning games. Um, uh, one of the first stories uh, I probably should have got told you at the start, but um, when I first joined Norwich, uh, I spoke to one of the senior players. I won't say which one, but one of the senior players. And I said, coming from rugby, like, what is a good season for Norwich? Because I don't really know anything about Norwich and I needed to learn. And he said... An ideal season in the championship is finishing eighth. And I was like, <laughs> finishing eighth? 
why do you not want to win the championship or finish in the top three or something like that? And he said, well, look at it from this point of view. He said, if you're in the top two or three, there's real pressure. Yeah, it's positive pressure, but there's real pressure because you have to win. You know, you're close to winning something, so you better win. He said, and if you're in the bottom five or six, there's a real negative pressure because you must not lose. He said, if you're lower mid-table, a lot of the fans are grumbling. They're, they're not happy. They want change. They need something else. He said, if you're in the playoffs down to sixth or seventh, you know, there's a real chance you could get in, but you better get in there and stay in there. He said, but eighth is perfect. He said, <laughs> because there's hope. But you can't put too much pressure on those guys because they'll crumble. So just finish eighth because it's close enough without having to achieve anything. And I thought, this is a guy who's super intelligently <laughs> thought about this and realised that the sweet spot is finishing eighth. So um, that well, year we actually finished eighth. <laughs> I, I believe, uh, I think Millwall are just about eighth at the moment uh, by a strange coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. You, you might have rumbled us there, Peter. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if we finish eighth this year, you know, that just tro- throws me back to like 24 years ago. <laughs> It's a. It's nice to work with moderately motivated athletes. From the- <laughs> yeah, it, it's certainly wor- better than working with a moderately uninterested athlete who yeah. literally has no, you know, no get up and go. Yeah, excellent, mate. Listen, um, we really appreciate your time. I know it's uh, it's about twenty five past eleven over there, so uh, I really appreciate you coming on and. And sharing your story, mate. It's been fantastic. Yeah, hopefully the uh, the listeners get something out of it, you know. But if not, you know, don't don't start tweeting me, you know, to <laughs> send me abuse. You know, I get enough of that at home. You know, when, <laughs> exactly. when I'm home late, it's like early in the morning or I'm not there at all, you know. Yeah. That's great. Nice, Thanks again for your time. And, um, and we'll no doubt catch up soon on, uh, on your next commute. Yeah. Brilliant. You know, you guys do such a good job with the podcast. You know, it's great to listen to it and, and the perspectives I hear from the guys you speak to, especially with your great network of people. You know, it's a, it's always a learning day when I'm listening to the uh, the Brookie and Burko podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, keep them going, guys. You know, uh, an avid fan from across the across the hemispheres. Ah, great. We'll send you the check in the mail, though. Fantastic. Uh, support yeah, lovely. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. yeah. Same as before, Peter. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot, Dave. We, we really appreciate it. And, and all the best for Millwall uh, to finish eighth. Thank you. Thanks, mate. We're on our way. Thanks.